What are bread and wine? They are not the kinds of things that one finds on a walk through the wilderness. One does not pluck a loaf of bread from a tree or scoop a handful of wine from a stream. If we would eat bread together at the Lord's table, there must have already taken place a gathering and a crushing of grain, as well as a mixing and a kneading, a baking, a slicing, a setting down on the table. Bread is the result of much and great cultural and technological labor. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologians podcast. I'm Zach Wagner, and I am joined right now by CPT fellow Dan Brenzel, who has uh, for a number of years been serving as an associate pastor in the Wheaton area west of Chicago and uh, recently took a senior pastor role and will be moving up to central Minnesota um, at a PCA church. So congratulations on that, Dan, and good Thank to you. have you here with us today. Well, thank you. It's good, good, to, good to be with you. Yeah. So, um, Dan, we have you here today to talk about uh, uh, a talk that you gave at the CPT conference a couple years ago um, and our uh, conference on technology. Uh, I wonder if, before we get into the talk itself, you could just give a little bit of context for um, the talk, and also uh, reflect a little bit on how you think about this talk in particular and the fact that you gave it a few months before COVID. And I think the church's relationship to technology has, I, th- I think you could say, changed, but perhaps it hasn't changed. Perhaps um, there's another way of thinking about it. I wonder if you could just reflect on that for a minute or two here. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, uh, uh I was invited to speak at the conference, um, in large part because um, um, I had I've, I've you know uh, spouted out about uh, technology as kind of a soapbox for several years in different contexts, <laughs> and so for some reason um, the so we had to call was, you on it. Like, yeah, all right, the was that, oh, maybe he knows what, yes. to, what to say about it. And so, yes. so, uh, so that that was kind of the build up to it, and and I I was a, a little bit. Um, uh, frozen, not knowing what to do because I, uh, I wasn't sure what to what to zero in on. Um, um, uh, but as I as I was thinking about it more, the, and, and this is how I, I frame it at the beginning of the of the talk at the conference, um, is is that I, I really wanted to see if and how the church as the church uh, could contribute to uh, healthy. Um, uh, understanding of and and orientation toward um, various questions about technology and challenges related to technology and opportunities possibilities that are good possibilities that are bound up with technology I wanted I wanted to see if the church would have a voice directly into that um, conversation since by and large um, it, it felt like the church was was just kind of waiting in the wings to receive the um, the reflections the considerations from mm-hmm. others and apply them um, as 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 um, as we saw fit so so that was the angle that I wanted to take on the conference and and um, somewhat tied to some other interests and responsibilities I have. It, it ended up going in a very specifically liturgical route. The, the way the church can yes. speak into technology is by paying attention to the church's uh, constituting event of gathering for corporate worship. Um, that that has resources to help us think um, faithfully um, in, in in our technological context and culture. Yeah, I wonder, and we, I, I think we'll get into the 
into the talk now, but uh, we'll take a break and we'll step out. And I, I want to ask you a follow-up question on that and on uh, where you go in, in the middle part of the talk. I'm excited to be here. I need the, the title for my talk this afternoon is The Path More Traveled, The Place of the Church in Christian Engagement of Technology. Just reading that title is taking up about half of my time. Um, so we'll jump right in. In the wide, wild, and unwieldy world, which is contemporary Christian discourse on the question of technology, one can find all manner of treatments, from how-to manuals for the wise use of technology, to dense philosophical treatments of new challenges in medical ethics, from lightly disguised dirges of the technological demise of society, to brave explorations of the inevitability of transhuman post-human developments. One can find just about everything one might desire in the ongoing debate, just about everything, for one searches largely in vain for substantive treatments of the place of the Church of Christ in all of this, of the distinct and constructive role that the church as church might play in forming a Christian vision of technology and a corresponding wise practice. By my lights, this is a major and regrettable lacuna. And my intention in this gathering is not so much to remedy that problem or to fill the void as to offer something of a starting point for thinking about the church vis-a-vis technology. We can begin by mapping the terrain of contemporary Christian treatments of technology. Much of the literature focuses on how the individual or society at large uses technology. And so we can call such approaches instrumentalist. Here, technology from the Greek techne, craft, or more broadly, making, is the stuff we make. A technology is just a tool. It is hammers and DVD players and bulldozers and bubble chambers and smartphones. Often, finer distinctions are drawn so that tools on the one side, for example, hammers, are distinguished from technology or devices on the other, smartphones and pacemakers and birth control pills and the internet and anything else really that glows or wows. However one identifies what counts as technology, on the instrumentalist approach, it is still stuff we manipulate, we make, and we use. So we ask after responsible making and using. How how do we make a good bulldozer, a well-crafted bulldozer? What does proper use of a smartphone look like? What's the proper place for technology in our home or in our neighborhoods? What Christian principles and ends guide good making and using of technology? How can we control technology rather than allowing it to control us? The literature here mainly addresses individual decisions. If the church has any role to play in such treatments, it is not considered at length, nor does the church appear as a constructive shaper of a Christian vision of technology. Rather, it appears as a discerning institutional user asking questions like, what are best practices in 
providing biblical instruction on our websites or in using audiovisual resources for corporate worship or promotions. Or maybe the church is a teacher of the good Christian principles and ends that guide wise use of technology. Differently, Nicholas Carr made waves about a decade ago with questions like, is Google making us stupid? And what is the internet doing to our brains? This comes at things not from the angle of instrumental use of technology, but of how technological realities impact us. And various Christian thinkers have followed Carr in commenting on the effects of digital technologies and social media on personal, personal consciousness, reading habits, and family and social life. Ecclesiological scrutiny appears more often in this mode of reflection, with the church examined as something of a passive sufferer of the effects of technological use and dispositions. Marshall McLuhan was the foremost prophet in this direction, arguing that late modern media and technology has refashioned the church and its conception and practice of authority. McLuhan's insights have been taken up, for example, by Shane Hips in The Hidden Power of Electronic Media, How Media Shapes Faith, the Gospel, and the Church. But again, in this kind of literature, the church as church offers little by way of a constructive contribution to a Christian vision of technology. Sometimes, the church may lurk behind generic references to community. In Shaping a Digital World, Faith, Culture, and Computer Technology, Derek Sherman calls individuals together with the wider Christian community to develop a responsible computer technology. Now, perhaps the church is included in the wider Christian community, but Sherman, as you continue to read him, seems mainly to mean the collective force and resources of Christians banded together in any old way. Other Christian writers call for practices of resistance to the harshest effects of technological culture for individuals or intentional communities to take up. The church may be one of the communities in view, but one, it is rarely named expressly, and more importantly, two, its importance seems to be as one of a number of possible communities. Again, the church hardly has a distinct and a constructive role to play as church. In fact, there seems to be at times a principled avoidance of referring to the church in favor of more generic religious communities. Albert Borgman is worth lingering with for a while, not just because he talks about mountains and wolves and hiking trails, which is really, really exciting for someone who lives in Illinois. He's worth lingering for a while as an interesting case in point of lauding Christian community while being apparently reticent to focalize the church per se. Now, I believe that Borgman gets us a good deal closer to addressing the church's role in shaping a Christian vision of technology, but he pulls up short, and that can be instructive for us. Of particular significance are Borgman's notions of focal things and focal practices. A focal thing is something sturdy, commanding attention, and like a lens, a focal thing sharpens our vision. 
A focal thing illuminates reality around it. So one looks, for example, at a dollop of Cool Whip, and what does one see? Hydrogenated coconut, xanthan gum, sodium cassonate, polysorbate 60. Most of us, I'm pretty confident, have no idea what all that stuff is, and some of us may be suspicious that I just broke out in tongues, which is to say, when we look at Cool Whip, we just see the Cool Whip. We don't see through it to anything else. Not so with homemade whipped cream. Many are able to see through a dollop of whipped cream to the cows who donated milk. Or we see through it to the mother who can whip up such wonders and whose love lets us lick clean the whisk when she is done. Cool Whip is an opaque article, but whipped cream is a focal thing. A focal thing commands attention in such a way that it gathers the relations of its context and radiates into its surroundings and informs them. And a focal practice, then, is the decided, regular, and normally communal devotion to a focal thing. It is the meal at which the family gathers to celebrate with the whipped cream-topped pie, to feast on it together, to give thanks to the maker of the cream and other goodnesses, to contribute in all sorts of ways, large and small, to the bring, bringing the meal about. For our purposes, Borgman is important in three respects. First, he recognizes that what we have to do with is a culture of technology. I, I, I agree with Borgman and others that the chief challenge of technology is not devices per se, their manufacture, their use, their formative power. The chief challenge is worldview and orientation, about which we will have more to say below. For now, it suffices to note that technological worldview is given form as, rendered plausible through, and further advanced by way of a material culture. A material culture is never the sum of individual neutral artifacts. George Grant gives an example. To think of a computer as a neutral tool which users determine the meaning of through intentional use is to turn a blind eye to the societies and corporations, the political and economic matrices, and the material structures and infrastructure without which no computer building takes place. If our reflection on tools and devices only ever addresses their making and using, they're being made and used, our reflection starts too late, and it ends too early. In Brian Brock's words, the problem of conceiving technology as neutral is that the true magnitude of the decision to build or use individual technologies like computers is hidden. Responsible understanding of our technological moment must attend to technological orientation and material culture. And Borgman's invitation to focal things and focal practices is important because he has this larger 
cultural challenge of technology squarely in view. He says, quote, focal things and practices are the crucial counterforces to technology understood as a form of culture. Now, when Borgman speaks of counterforces, he is liable to being misunderstood. So we must clarify, second, that Borgman neither rejects the culture of technology entirely, nor encourages retreat into pre-technological enclaves. Rather, he promotes focal things and practices to strengthen us to resist the deforming powers of our technological age. Quote, the moral limitation and desiccation of technology do not come fully into view until they are seen against the vitality and humor of a focal practice. Focal things and practices play, therefore, a hermeneutical role for those attending to them. But not only that, as forms of inevitably patterned and social commitment, focal practices also shape and cultivate. Borgman rightly identifies a mistaken assumption that the shaping of our lives can be left to a series of individual decisions. So he champions focal things and practices, as Brent Waters explains, because they embody a formative tradition against which the character and virtues of its adherents are conformed. Borgman seeks to fight fire with fire, or to use a better, because less conflict-oriented description, Borgman engages technological culture with a differing material culture and tradition. So you were talking in the introduction about the, the church's gathering as, a, as an event, perhaps it's fair to say, of, of, of meaning-making. Um, and uh, it's, it's ironic listening to this talk now in a post-COVID world. I think a lot, of, a lot of churches are still meeting remotely, and a lot have started to regather or have been regathered in person for some time. Many are doing kind of a hybrid. Um, what what is the significance of the fact that like you're making a you're you're talking in 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 the presentation about the significance of the kind of liturgical gathering? What what do we make of the fact that the liturgical gathering has been suspended in in many ways um, for a lot of people, or it, we're just coming back to it after a long absence? Um, as I'm listening to this again. All, all those questions are coming up, and I wonder if you have any reflections on that. What, is, what does it mean when the, the, the church can't gather? And in fact, its gathering is mediated by technology. Yeah, I, I think um, a few things that have, uh, that have been um, stirring for me in, in the last year uh, in, in relation to being on the heels of, of that conference talk is, is um, in relation to gathering is that... Uh, uh, all of our gatherings are are, are mediated. Um, our, our connectedness in our gatherings is mediated by by our bodies, by the by the material conditions that are around us. You know, the pews in the sanctuary, the the um, the setup of the sanctuary. Um, uh, there's there's there are 
the, the material conditions both connect us, we're paying attention to the same things and distinguish us or separate us. This, you know, this pew is between you and me. Um, mm-hmm. So the point of gathering has that, has that individuating and, and com- communal connectedness yes. um, um, function for us. Um, and, and so the, what we lose is uh, in, in not gathering are, are the ways in which our, our bodies and our place help us understand who we are and help us help connect us to those who aren't us. Um, I I don't think that that's missing. Like, 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 like the mediation is not missing in online meeting and connection connectivity. Uh, But it's, it's severely the, the mediating point is severely reduced to just the computer or the phone and the internet um, uh, network. And so, um, the, the the question is what does that mediating that that connecting and separating um, uh, focal point of attention what what other conditions are tied to that or or the what I use in the in the conference talk what material culture is that a part of and how is that either putting tension on what the church as a culture is seeking to do in its in its constituting yes. gatherings or, or or contributing to and and i'm i'm increasingly persuaded that that it's putting some unhealthy tension um uh toward what the church should be about when it gathers for worship maybe one other thought that comes to mind is i, I don't i've 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 sensed that increasingly there is uh, unclarity and confusion about what gathering for worship actually is and so because there is um, a strong undercurrent of, of what gathering for worship is, is expressivist opportunity to, to let out what I bring into the sanctuary, there really isn't much that's felt that's lost from bringing out what I bring into the sanctuary to bringing out what I bring to this computer screen. And so, so if that's the felt understanding, uh, felt need and felt uh, uh, shared understanding of what corporate worship is, then there won't be much of a sense of difference between doing it through a screen mediated by, by computers and the internet versus um, gathering in a place. The same functional individual expression can happen in both. One might be more emotionally involved if other people, if one hears all the voices in the sanctuary, but yes. the same basic thing of my individual expression can happen in either place. Third, Borgman clearly views Christian faithfulness in a technological age as inseparable from rootedness in an ordered community, in a formative tradition, in a contrast culture. Bread and wine appear often in his writings as examples of focal things and icons of his larger proposal. He describes the counter culture that we must be a part of in several places in his writings as a culture of the word and a culture of the table. He encourages Christians to pursue embodied celebratory gatherings, but he avoids naming the Christian culture of the word and table to be the church. In one place, he addresses Lord's Day gathering for the focal practice of worship, but it is to call out the insufficiency of this practice alone for shaping Christian sensibilities in our technological age. 
he seems hesitant to identify as central and indispensable, not the only be-all, end-all thing that there is, but central and indispensable, the Eucharist and the church as such. Borgman takes us a long way toward understanding the cultivation of Christian faithfulness and wisdom in a technological age. But in the end, he leaves us, as does most of the literature on this matter, with what we might call a churchless Christian practice or a Christian engagement with the technological age in which the church is only a hint, an intimation, an optional aid for those seeking additional resources or encouragement. This is both ironic and unfortunate, for Borgman himself claims that, quote, it is but a short step from the culture of the word to the word of God, and from the culture of the table to the breaking of bread. In the final paragraphs of From Human to Post-Human, Christian Theology and Technology in a Postmodern World, Brent Waters takes that short step singling out the Eucharist as a focal thing in practice to form and sustain a counter-theological discourse to that offered by post-human discourse. I am persuaded that we must follow him. Brian Brock has made a similar point in his remarkable Christian ethics in a technological age. One social space, Brock observes, is divinely designated as a place for orienting us for life in all other places. It is the place of the church gathered for and enacting worship. Waters has planted a seed, and Brock has offered a very important preliminary treatment, but there is much more work to be done. For the church is not just a maker and user of technological artifacts, it is not just a passive sufferer of the impacts of technological society. The church is not just one among many optional voluntary communities which may be a supplier or encourager of individuals. Rather, the church as church, the visible, gathered body of Christ enacting worship in word and sacrament, has a central, active, and constructive role to play in the cultivation of wisdom for and redemptive life in our technological age. To provide an image of what it is that I'm suggesting, I'm going to steal from Wendell Berry. I like to steal. In, in a 1969 essay entitled A Native Hill, Barry compares and contrasts a forest path and a paved road. The difference between a path and a road, Barry says, is not only the obvious one. A path is little more than a habit that comes with knowledge of a place. It is a sort of ritual of familiarity. As a form, it is a form of contact with the known landscape. It is not destructive. It is the perfect adaptation through experience and familiarity of movement to place. It obeys the natural contours. Such obstacles as it meets, it goes around. A road, on the other hand, even the most primitive road embodies a resistance against the landscape. Its reason is not simply the necessity of movement, but haste. Its wish is to avoid contact with the landscape. 
Its tendency is to translate place into space in order to traverse it with the least effort. It is destructive, seeking to remove or destroy all obstacles in its way. According to Matthew Dickerson, Barry is contrasting worldviews. The road symbolizes what Dickerson calls a technological mindset. The word technology, in fact, is not only from the Greek techne, and thus a simple reference to the stuff of our making. Rather, as George Grant observes, technology unites techne and logos, both craft and reason. Technology is the co-penetration of knowing and making. To be technological is to know all things as problems to overcome by making, or as what Heidegger called standing reserve, neutral, raw material at our beck and call to be wielded and controlled in our agendas of making. To be technological is less to have tools to make roads and and having many roads, and more, a default knowing of the trees and the streams between point A and point B as standing reserve or as obstacles. By contrast, Dickerson says, the path illustrates a humble orientation, a receptivity and responsiveness to given reality. Dickerson's treatment of the above quoted passage from Barry is helpful, but in choosing the word mindset, he's talking about a technological mindset, in choosing the word mindset, he fails to take paths and roads seriously enough. What if we thought of paths and roads not as thin symbols for mindsets, but as physical forms and instances of material culture? When we understand Barry to be referring not to mere illustrations for thought patterns, but irreducibly to dirt and gravel and asphalt, some important avenues open up to us. For material paths and roads are never simply neutral artifacts. They are always meaningful. And their meaning is never wholly determined by the intentions of their makers and users. Rather, their meaning is bound up in a large and often unwieldy historical cultural matrix. A path and a road are always part of a material culture, embodiments of cultural sensibilities, reinforcers of cultural commitments. On the flip side, a culture is never just material things, but the tradition and system of commitments and interdictions and authority which give rise to such things and which material artifacts and practices extend and strengthen. A worldview and its embodiment are inseparable, so it will do little good to present the road as only a cipher for a worldview without also realizing the cultivating power of the material road. The same is true for the path. To traverse on and in and with and along a path is to be cultivated in an ethos. When we ask, where might the church be in the contrast of the path and the road, I suggest that the church is not primarily a maker or user of paths and roads. The church is not primarily a thinker whose thought life is represented by the symbol of a path or a road. But the church, specifically the church engaged in worship, 
is to be a path, an instance of material culture that is in important ways distinguishable from the road which instantiates the material culture of technological society. In fact, it is quite fitting to speak of the church gathered for and enacting worship in word and sacrament as itself a path-like instance of a material culture. And this, for at least two reasons. The first has to do with the dynamics of path formation. Scott Anial invites us to imagine a dense forest separating two cities. In order to engage in commerce between these two cities, merchants must pass through the forest. For the earliest of these merchants, this was a very difficult task. Eventually, though, over time and with experience, the merchants discovered the safest, quickest route through the forest. Once they did, they began to carefully mark the path so that they would remember the best way to go. Their regular trips along that same route began to form a much more visible path to the degree that years later, merchants hardly pay attention. They doze peacefully at their horses as they casually follow the heavily trod road. Here now is a well-worn path cut through the wood. This path may seem mundane, but in reality, it is embedded with values such as desire for safety, protection from the dangers of the forest, and conviction that this is the quickest way through. The snoozing merchants do not give thought to these values any longer, but the values are there nonetheless. And whether they know it or not, their journey has been shaped by those values. Those values are, as it were, worn into the shape of the path itself. A path just is cultural sensibilities and commitments etched into the dirt of the earth. <clears throat> to walk it is to submit to being shaped by a culture and a formative tradition and already to begin being so shaped and formed. To walk it is to be discipled by the long line of wayfarers who have gone before us and have contributed to its formation. In this light, despite the abundant traffic and congestion of the highways around us, the path may prove to be the way more traveled by. Let us think of the church's gathered practice and order for worship as a well-traveled path that disciples us in Christian wisdom and cultural sensibility crucial for analyzing the dynamics, the problems, and the possibilities of technological culture. This leads to a second reason why the path is a fitting metaphor for the Lord's Day Assembly for Covenantal Worship. As Barry's reflections attest, the formation of a path typically occurs with a certain submissiveness and responsiveness to given reality. No forest path is a straight and uniform in width line but here broadens out with an opening in the trees. There goes around a boulder, then meanders with a creek for some distance. Of course, forming a path does require some alteration of the terrain. Patches of grass will be worn and pressed down. Fallen brush or low-hanging limbs are cut and cleared away. Paths exist as a form of working in concert with a given reality. But importantly, it is working in concert, working that is at the same time irreducibly responsive. 
paths are training in the healthy receiving of gifts. What happens when the church gathers for worship? Well, for one thing, it is gathered. In properly theological terms, the church does not gather and make itself. It is God who gathers the church in covenant assembly, forming the church by his creative word and the call to worship to which we respond with songs of praise. God declares his law to which we respond with contrition in the confession of sin. God comforts us in the absolution, proclaiming forgiveness as, as confessions barely even off our lips. So eager is he to forgive, to which we respond with renewed joy. At its best, the worship of the church is a rhythm of God graciously and lovingly initiating and the church, by the power of the Spirit, humbly, gladly, gratefully replying to the word of Christ. The church gathered in worship is confronted with a word it did not speak from a God it did not make, a God who cannot be co-opted as an instrument for our agendas. The church at worship has only to receive and respond. This is a second reason why it is fitting to identify the event of liturgical worship as a path-like instance of the church's material culture. Worship at its best involves the church traversing through the service with the grace and wisdom of responsiveness to given reality. And I submit that a necessary stage in the formation of a Christian vision and practice of technology is traveling the path which is the liturgical assembly, both theoretically by allowing the elements and ordering of Christian liturgy to order our deliberations on technology, and practically by enacting corporate worship Sunday after Sunday as the church of God. I wonder, as we wrap things up here, I, I don't hear a ton of people, honestly, um, saying, maybe I'm not listening in the circles where this is being said, but I don't hear a lot of people <laughs> saying like, oh, well, why bother, on, why bother going back? We've been doing this Zoom thing just fine, and it's virtual, and it's great, and I don't have to get out of bed. Like, people make jokes about that. But I think... Um, I think it's fair to say that most Christians intuit that there is something significant about the embodied gathered worship that isn't just um, preferred, but uh, indeed significant. And, and, and true worship is constituted in the gathering in some sense. Um and I think we have been living in this like counter liturgy of, of technology as we've kind of been trying to make it through COVID. Yeah. And now hopefully we're getting closer to the other side of it. Um, then uh, in what ways can the regathering of the church in this season be a, a, a counter liturgy to the counter liturgy, I suppose? Yeah, sure. What, what are, um, what are some some ways that you think re, the regathering of churches can can form us importantly in this in this season in 2021 and beyond? Yeah, um, 
I mean, one, one thought that comes to mind, and this, and this relates to kind of the focus of the final section in, in the conference talk as well, is, is um, uh, we should, we, we have an opportunity in the regathering to pay attention, not just to what we're expecting or wanting to pay attention to. I mean, so one of the things that's interesting about, about Zoom, for example, because uh, it's been, it's been touted a lot. Uh, uh, this is a way to stay connected in, in, in the pandemic um, shelter in place and, and, and isolation. We can use Zoom to stay connected, but, but the thing about the Zoom is you're connected to the people that you're wanting to be connected to. You're thinking about who you're, there's no serendipitous encounter <laughs> in, 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 um, mm. in, a, in a, the controlled online environment. And so what gathering enables you to do is to, 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 to have to encounter the ones that you weren't paying attention to before. <laughs> and um, and, and, and that, that forces questions of ecclesiology. Is the church simply the ones I agree with and want to be around? Or is yes. the church also the, uh, you know, for example, the, the very aged who aren't going to be on our Zoom meetings or the uh, mentally handicapped or, or the kids who don't uh, have speech faculties yet? Uh, what is the church and, and gathering presses that question in a way that, 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 that zoom doesn't. So I, here's an opportunity, I think for us to really, as we start doing gatherings more um, to really press questions of who is the church? What is the church? What does yes. it mean to be the church? And that's kind of what I mean. And, and what, what I gather you're talking about when you say um, the gathering really is constitutive. It, it's, it's not just what we think about the church but the gathering puts pressure back on how we should think about the church and, and, and we need to get back to it. Um, I, mm. I, I, I'm not going to be one of the people that will say, well, any church that shut down for a little while is, was unfaithful. There are, there are reasons, <laughs> good reasons and good seasons to, um, to have, have, have a, have a fast or, or a, um, or a, um, a, um, um, short-term um, window of, of, of not being able to gather. But, but when you gather again, um, it really capitalize on what that is and not just some of the individual benefits that accrue to, to those who like that type of event. <laughs> In our remaining time, I will suggest three reasons why this is so. And to continue our path and road metaphor, we can say that there are three things that we can see with respect to technology from the vantage point on and along and at the end of the path, which is the church at worship. The first thing that we can see more clearly from the path of the church at worship is the road over yonder, which is technological culture. We fail to notice something like technological culture and technological orientations precisely for their pervasiveness. They're everywhere. The advantage of the formative tradition and material culture entailed in the church's liturgical practice is that it affords us opportunity to gain critical distance. The church at worship is something of a contrast culture that provides us with greater analytical purchase on the shape, on the patterns, on the logic of the wider cultures and, and the wider orientations in which we are all otherwise obliviously embedded. The church's worship as a contrast culture is particularly important vis-a-vis -vis technological culture. 
Some may wonder if my title, The Path More Traveled, is an ironic allusion to Robert Frost's famous poem. It is indeed, but it is doubly ironic. Contrary to popular assumptions, Frost's poem is not titled The Path Less Traveled, but The Road Not Taken. In earlier stanzas, as David Orr notes, we read that the two roads equally lay in leaves that day, and that the passing there had warned them really about the same. They're two equally trodden roads. In the final stanza, the speaker frames himself as a brave trailblazer whose decision to take the road less traveled by is what made all the difference. But the title of the poem, simply the road not taken, is nearer the mark. Could it be then that the poem isn't a salute to can-do individualism, but a commentary on the self-deception we practice when constructing the story of our own lives? However one reads Frost's poem, the self-deception we practice when constructing the story of our own lives is an apt description of modern technological society. To view all of life as a matter of self-construction, of using, of strategizing, is self-deception, if only because reality is much, 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 much more than our making. But technological culture treats all things in terms of technique and method. The technological mindset encounters, wherever it turns, obstacles to overcome or raw material to functionally ignore for now, but which may prove useful later on if our agendas change. Our agendas and techniques for making are determinative of our action and being in the world. The matter is stated, I think, most clearly and forcefully by Oliver O'Donovan in a slim volume on reproductive techniques and interventions. What marks this culture out most importantly is not anything that it does, but what it thinks. It is not technological because its instruments of making are extraordinarily sophisticated, though that is evidently the case, but because it thinks of everything it does as a form of instrumental making. Politics, which should surely be the most non-instrumental of activities, is talked of as making a better world. Love is building a successful relationship. There is no place for simply doing. The fate of a society which sees wherever it looks nothing but the products of human will is that it fails when it does see some aspect of human activity which is not a matter of construction to recognize the significance of what it sees and to think about it appropriately. I believe that O'Donovan is on target in his articulation of the present cultural moment. But the church at worship is a path of contrast. It's a focal practice that exposes our orientations toward technique and making. It is a place that trains us in receiving and doing and responsiveness. At its best, the church at worship is a pattern of receiving gifts of God's initiating grace. It is a culture of doing in remembrance. It is a practice and place the inner logic of which is receptivity to the wisdom of our forebears and especially to the God who is never an instrument for our wielding. 
On the path of the church at worship, we can see better the deformities taking place along the road over yonder, and perhaps by the Spirit's power, begin to be formed otherwise. But the church is not only a contrast culture. The church at worship is also more basically a revelation of what ordered life as God's created world could be, an invitation to aim and hope toward what it will be, a beginning on that way. Walking the path of the church at worship is not only contrastive to other cultures, but also and especially constructive as we see the glorious end of the path, namely Eucharistic celebration. Reformed liturgical theologian J.J. von Allman has called the liturgical enactment the epiphany of the church. It is where our identity as God's covenant people in Christ is revealed and renewed with covenantal word and signs. This explains in part why I focalize worship in word and sacrament in my proposal about the constructive role of the church in forming a Christian vision of technology. Are there not many other engagements, many locations, many other aspects about being the church of Christ that contribute to our maturation and wisdom and grace to live well in our technological age? There are, but I am persuaded that all these other contributions originate biblically, theologically, historically in the liturgical assembly. Ecclesiology and liturgy are bound together. Indeed, the New Testament word, ecclesia, typically translated as church, arguably has roots in the Old Testament concept of the kahal of Yahweh, the solemn assembly, the gathering of Israel to meet with their covenant Lord where their identity and status as God's covenant people was marked out and confirmed as at Sinai or the dedication of the temple. In this light, we can agree with von Allman in identifying church or ecclesia as not in the first place or merely a sociological or juridical term, but very definitely a liturgical term. It is in worship that ecclesiology comes into its own. By worship, I do not only mean the inner Godward feelings and thoughts of an individual. And by saying that worship reveals the church's identity, I do not mean that the idea of the identity of the church is taught to it through one means, the worship service, among many. Rather, I mean that in corporate covenantal worship, that is gathering for Lord's Day covenant renewal, the church enacts its identity. It has its covenant status confirmed through covenant ceremony. It covenantally becomes the people of God in much the same way that a man and a woman become husband and wife, not by thinking about the union or being taught about the union, but by way of going through the covenant ceremony called a wedding. Importantly, when the church enacts its covenantal identity, this always occurs through a set time and in a particular place of gathering. This means that time and place are irreducibly part of how we know ourselves in relation to God and how we receive our identity from him. More than that, what we do in that time and place necessarily involves water and bread and wine at least. So in Alexander Schmemann's provocative words, we need water and oil, bread and wine in order to be in communion with God and to know him. Yet conversely, it is this communion with God by means of matter 
that reveals the true meaning of matter, that is, of the world itself. Worship proves to be not only the epiphany of the church, but also the epiphany of the world, the world of time and place and bodies and light and water and bread and wine. We can go still further. What are bread and wine? They are not the kinds of things that one finds on a walk through the wilderness. One does not pluck a loaf of bread from a tree or scoop a handful of wine from a stream, however much I might have wished that. If we would eat bread together at the Lord's table, there must have already taken place a gathering and a crushing of grain, as well as a mixing and a kneading, a baking, a slicing, a setting down on the table. There must have already occurred a long history of culinary science and discovery and apprenticing, as well as the development of agricultural know-how and skill in tilling and sowing and threshing and understanding the differences between crops. Additionally, there must have been countless scientific and manufacturing discoveries leading to the construction of useful equipment like plows and ovens and tables. If we would eat bread, break bread at the Eucharist, then we must rely on agricultural realities, culinary understanding, social and economic arrangements, apprenticing and the passing on of traditional knowledge. Bread is the result of much and great cultural and technological labor. Generations and generations of it. The same kinds of things must also be said about wine. Bread and wine is the stuff of cultural and technological labor, which means that the stuff of cultural and technological labor is brought into the sanctuary and appears in its true place at the end of the liturgy. Worship is the epiphany of the world, including the cultural and technological development of it. The liturgical event climaxing in the covenant meal reveals in Peter Lightheart's words that the kingdom does not involve a cancellation of this worldly concerns. It is not a wholly other world, but this world transformed and transfigured. Technological developments, even those arising from the line of Cain, as it were, are not off limits. But this is not because they are neutral able to be used for good or bad ends entirely determined by the individual users. Rather, it's because technological developments and cultural artifacts and practices fit into a larger whole. Or, at least, they may, with discernment, be found to fit in remarkable spirit-led ways in the drama of God's mission. The church at worship is an enactment revealing the larger shape and logic of that drama and especially its proper end, a many-colored kingdom of Eucharistic renewal and rejoicing. Do our technological pursuits point us toward that end? Or do they point us to other ends? Or do they point us to means masquerading as ends? For example, just getting the word out, or grabbing attention, or maximizing conveniences, or increasing productivity and efficiency, or connecting with others like us, stirring up excitement, or fundraising. Realizing the end of the path ought to frame and guide and hold accountable all our necessary endeavors in making and in developing the world to which we are sent on mission from the sanctuary. 
At its best, the church at worship is the beginning and foretaste of true society, true culture, standing as an invitation to a better way for us and for all the nations of the world. At its best, the church at worship is not a pre-technological enclave, but a molding and directing of technological labor toward its proper Eucharistic ends. At its best. I have used that little qualifier consistently and needfully so, for of course the church at worship is often not at its best. There is likely a widespread need for liturgical reform. The visible on-the-ground church is never at its best. There is an ever-present need in this age for repentance. At the end of the path of the church at worship, we eat and drink until the Lord comes. His return has not yet happened, which means that our lives are still plagued by sin and disorder. Not only the world, but the church is infected by the idolatrous deformities characteristic of our technological culture. It is no use ignoring this or trying to establish so-called pure places that, that are not touched by the defiling powers of the world. But what other alternative is there? Well, let us think liturgically. That is, let us see and engage in the full movement of the path. We have noted that the church at worship offers a foretaste of the incorporation of all things, our technological labors included, into the festal worship and praise of God. But that foretaste only comes at the end of the path. It's only arrived at by walking the way that precedes it. And importantly, what we must pass through to get there is confession and absolution. The renewal of all things into Eucharistic joy only comes about through crisis, through fire, through death and resurrection. We, the church, are made new through the crisis, which is confession of sins and baptism into the glorious grace of God's redeeming love. Our cultural and technological labors can and must be brought with us along that path. For they, too, require not just refurbishing, or refilling, or rebranding, but redemption. This means that a properly Christian vision of technology does not simply treat the stuff of technological culture as though it were empty form to be loaded as is with purportedly Christian meaning and content. Rather, it must all go with us and with Christ through death and resurrection. And this happens experientially in the liturgical acts of confession and absolution. So here is my modest practical proposal. If we would seek to be wise, redemptive agents in the challenging technological society, which is ours, we must become well-practiced in identifying and naming in corporate confession of sin and in lamentation our various technological disorders and sins. The point is not trite judgmentalism, or shallow self-pity, but firm faith in the promise of God to save us from our technological selves in the only place where that salvation can come, namely in our technological selves. So what is a faithful response for the church of God? Uh, do not believe it's forswearing the use of smartphones and ceasing to manage church websites. 
In many ways, that is far too easy, making it seem as if the problem were somehow only external to us. The way forward is to walk the path of the church at worship. Particularly, we must identify and name our technological disorders and idolatries in confession of sin and lamentation. We might confess, guided by Psalm 15's description of the one who may dwell on God's holy hill, Holy Lord, have mercy on us. We have done evil to our neighbors, not only intentionally and maliciously, but also by ignoring them and building up technological walls that contribute to our oblivion. Or adapting a prayer from the worship source book, we might lament, Lord, we are afraid of people different from us, those more powerful than us, those poorer than us, those not of our color or tradition, those younger or older than us. How do we talk with such people, oh God? How do we make peace with them? Lord, we are ill-practiced at this. In fact, we have practiced just the opposite, choosing with phone and car and media only to attend to people like ourselves. In more ways than one, we have need to plead God's mercy concerning our devices and desires. Yet we do so in hope, trusting the word of the gospel that Christ died and rose again for sinners, for those enmeshed in idolatrous culture for us. And he did so in order to make us and all things new. Rising from confession of sin, we hear the word of assurance marking today as the day of salvation. Know that your sins are forgiven in Christ and be at peace. And if today is the day of salvation, then now, by the power of the Spirit, new creational possibilities are open to us, even with the very devices of our prior deformation. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. None of us can predict just how by the Spirit's leading, that will play out in redeemed cultural and technological lives. But we can be confident that the life that walks the path of confession and forgiveness and finds itself on the other side will be new life. The matter of inattentiveness is just one example among many of technological disorder and sin that we might confess to the Lord in the hope of forgiveness and renewal. And what more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of those who in manifestation of their technological mindset sought to conquer geographic limitation as if it were evil, catered to privately curated entertainment experiences in fashioning liturgical gatherings, wielded the gospel as if it were simply a tool for improving my quality of life or a way of distinguishing us from other sectors of the religious marketplace. Women received back their dead by maintaining Facebook shrines to the deceased. Some submitted to what can only be called bodily torture, refusing to accept the givenness of their bodily makeup in the hopes of attaining by medical technique a better, more beautiful life. Others suffered no exposure to different opinions. They were protected by technological walls, sawn off from anyone unlike themselves. They went about in practices and postures and pursuits and paradigms of which the world was worthy. But God has provided something better for us. There is a path that helps us discover it. It is the church gathered into the presence of its covenant-making God, confessing its sins, receiving forgiveness, and finding itself ultimately at a banquet of joy.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.